Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. And if it's your first time joining us online, I want to extend a special welcome to you. We are so glad that you've taken time out of your Sunday to come here, worship with us together, and learn from God's Word. If you don't know me, my name is Josh Stanley, and I'm an intern here at Bethel. Um, you may be wondering why I'm up here rather than Pastor Allen or Pastor Nathan, and I do promise Pastor Allen will be back. We, uh, we haven't locked him awake quite yet. Um, and to be honest, when Pastor Allen told me I would be up here, I, I was a little bit puzzled too. I didn't know why they'd have the brand new intern up here so soon. Um, but I think I figured it out this week. Uh, if you didn't know, we had our, our kids day camp this past week and I was out there able to interact with the kids, play games with them and, and see them understand the Bible better. And it's out there when I realized that I think I'm just a lot more fun than those guys. I think that's why they put me up here. I think they wanted a little bit more hopping someone's step or, or seated, if you will. So I think that's why they pulled me up here. I just think they needed more, more fun. Um, in all seriousness, it is a, an incredible joy for me to be here with you, and I hope our time in the Word is beneficial for us all. If you've been following along this summer, we're in our Psalms of Summer series, and we're going to be continuing there today. We'll be in Psalm 63 with a message entitled, Seeking What Satisfies. So let me pray, and we'll jump right into it. Father, thank you for this time we have to dive into your word and learn what it says about you, about us, our relationship with you. And I just pray that our time here is spent digesting what you have to say, that you would open our hearts and our ears to listen, and you would give me the words to speak. Father, help me to not speak on my own authority or on my own accord, but to speak the words that you have given to me for us to hear. I pray that we would all Find something today that helps us better serve you and better love you and know you more. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean to be satisfied? When we first hear the word, we think it means to be, it, it, to be made content. That we can say, you know, this is good. This is satisfying. But what, what does it take to be satisfied? Well, I think that depends on what you need satisfaction for. At my house this summer, we've been trying to fix up our garden so they can look nice and pretty. And it's been, been a long job. It's quite a big garden, to be honest. And it's been pretty hot on the days that we can actually get out there and work. And so for those days when I'm out there and I'm sweaty and I'm working and I'm digging and I'm weeding, what satisfies me is it's a staple of summer here. It's dollar drink days at McDonald's. You get home after a long day, you get inside after a long work outside, you hop in the car, drive down two minutes down the road from honestly just about anywhere, and you pay a buck or a buck fifty for a drink. What I usually get is I usually get a nice cold root beer with lots of ice because I need something cold. And you take that first sip and oof, that's good. It just, it hits the spot. In other words, if you're just looking to calm down, I think there's a about a million videos on the internet of you can see where all it says is satisfying in the title. And it's just some machine that perfectly cuts butter or cheese the same, same size every time. And it sounds silly, but you look at that and you just go, wow, that's, that's really nice. Um, and there's about a million other things that we could talk about. But in reality, we all want to be satisfied. There's about a million things in our life and we just want to know, I'm good. I'll be okay. 
And whatever we think will satisfy us, that's what we'll chase after. We think, if I just get blank, whatever it is in your mind, I'll be good. Sometimes they're not inherently bad. A lot of us think that financial stability is going to be what satisfies us. And we think that when we come home at the end of the day, if we just have enough, not to be super rich, but just to get by, that'll be good. And so we'll chase after our job. We will be the most committed worker. We will be the guy who's there early morning and late at night. And we'll just become chasing after our work day in and day out. Or some of us think that it's not necessarily our job or financial stability. It's just a neat and tidy house. It's so that if everything goes wrong in the workday from our nine to five, we can come home and it's neat and it's tidy and we can look around and everything's just perfect about the space we live in. And we spend our days meticulously cleaning and organizing and make sure everyone, everything just looks good. And those aren't inherently bad, but sometimes it can be a little bit more dangerous. We think we'll be satisfied when we can just feel good and feel happy most of the time. And we'll end up doing whatever gives us that feeling or that rush most of the time. And that can be anywhere from recreational activities like sports or Netflix, but it can also go into a little bit darker things like finding satisfaction going out and drinking a bunch, or we can be indulging in behaviors we know are wrong, but they just feel, they just feel good. And we don't do these things because we want to stray or we want to do something harmful. But like I said before, something in us just wants to come home at the end of the day and just, I'm good. I'll be good. I'm okay. I've got what I need. The problem with everything I mentioned before, whether it's the stuff that we know is wrong or the stuff that isn't necessarily bad, the problem is it's all changing. In one moment, your money can be spent, can be gone. Your job can change for the better or for the worse. Our own sinful behavior, those things we know are wrong, come to light and we're faced with the consequences of what we've done. For me and my family, it was we had each other. We were satisfied in knowing that whatever we, wherever we went, whatever we were doing, it didn't matter because at the end of the day, we could come home, we had our family, we were good. And just like everything else, in a moment, that changed. A couple of years ago, we went from having this this great healthy family unit that we knew would always be there to when my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And then less than a year later, he was gone. And it rocked our world because that was what we craved. That was what was satisfying us. We had our family and that's not a bad thing. But in a moment, it can all change. So when everything changes, when that thing that you chase after, that thing that satisfies is gone, your job or that behavior, that, that addiction that you've had, or your family changes, or your house is a mess. What do you do? Where do you go? Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 63. This Psalm specifically speaks to this moment. David finds himself in the wilderness of Judah. Everything in his life had come crashing down. He had gone from a palace in Jerusalem to the desert with nothing in Judah. And he's looking for one thing. He's looking for that satisfaction. He wants to know, I'm good. I've got what I need. I don't have everything, but I've got what I need. 
in this psalm, David not only tells us the one thing that can give us that satisfaction, that comfort, that peace, that joy, that sense of he doesn't tell us what can give us give it permanently, but he also tells us why. So I'll read through it and then we'll dive in to what David has to say. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped." So like I said, this is when David is in the wilderness and he actually, this happened two times in his life, one earlier before he was king and one after. This happens in the second instance where David sits and writes this psalm. And the second time David flees into the wilderness is when his son Absalom revolts against him and actually takes Jerusalem from him. Happens in 2 Samuel 15. Absalom had revolted against his father and tried to take the entire kingdom. Now, Absalom had not been appointed king by anyone but himself. He took justice into his own hands by killing his brother. And after years of exile, he conceived a plan to not only return to Jerusalem, but to take the throne and overthrow David. And when his plan comes to light, David is forced out into the wilderness a second time. Now, this is important because in ancient Israel, Jerusalem was the place where God lived. So when someone controlled Jerusalem, it was very easy for them to claim that God was with them. And similarly, if you lost a position in Jerusalem and you were pushed out, it was very easy to assume and feel like God was not with you. So it's here in the wilderness, hungry, thirsty, and weary, that David writes this. So we know when everything has gone wrong and our souls are tired, they're hungry, they're thirsty, and we're in that wilderness that God has given us words to pray and words to speak to him with. And they go like this. God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. God, you are my God. The psalm opens with David admitting that God is God over his life. And in those days, everyone attached themselves to some foreign deity. We read about some of them in the Bible, things like the golden calf or Baal or any of Israel's enemies. Now, it's different. It's not like that now. We don't have state-sanctioned religions, and not every single person we meet is going to try and pull us directly into their own spirituality or ideology. 
But for us, we know, and I guarantee that every day, there is something, a circumstance, an ongoing habit, a simple conversation, something that is trying to pull us away from relying on God. And it's in those moments that we have when everything hits the fan and we have a choice to turn to those things or we have a choice to turn to God and say, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. God is the one thing that will satisfy. As, many, as some of you may know, growing up, my dad was a pastor. So my life was filled with what I like to call sermonophobia. And anyone who's been around someone who preaches or a pastor for any length of time, I think you know what I'm talking about. It's that unsettling feeling, a little bit of a shiver up your spine, that almost anything you do that could be out of the ordinary, whether it's straight up incorrect or weird, or just simply a little bit odd, any of it can be used as a dreaded sermon illustration. And what you do will be told to a bunch of people that you don't know, nor necessarily wanting to hear how you couldn't open the pickle jar the right way or you fell up the stairs. But it could be used as a sermon illustration. And I remember my dad would do this all of the time. And I was terrified of it because every time the people in the church would look over right at me, right in the pew and go, yep, that was you. That probably wasn't smart. But David, he doesn't have that fear. Many of us in David's position would have focused solely on what we actually need. You know, food, water, shelter. But David doesn't do that. He's in a desert and he doesn't have steady food supply. He has no supply of water. And there's not a lot of shelter out there. But David turns and he says, My throat is dry. My body is weary. This is what it's like for my soul to be without God. And don't get me wrong, it's never a bad idea to ask for God's help in, in physical situations. But sometimes we need to see less of the world around us to see how much we really need God. David's physical trouble led him to recognize his spiritual need. And David is crying out to God and he says, God, I need you. I have nothing. Everything is coming down everywhere. My soul is thirsty and my body needs your strength. That's it. That's our need. If we seek that satisfaction, that calmness, that stillness, that goodness, and we rely on anything but God, we're doing it wrong. And if you've been here at Bethel for any length of time, or a lot of churches that we know, you've heard that before. You know that, and I know that. I can assume for some of us, this isn't brand new information that we need to rely on God. But for some of us, it might be new information. It might be something we've never heard before. And if that's you, I am so happy that you've come here with us today because you need to know this. God is satisfying, friends. He's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Just God. So why is it so hard for us to remember that? Why do I always feel like this? Why do I always feel in the wilderness if God is all satisfying? If I know he's all satisfying and I follow him, why do I find myself in the wilderness so often? Well, look at the next verse. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. 
God is all satisfying. So go to him. When he says, I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. In Jerusalem, the sanctuary is actually the place where they met God. So in some sense, the room in the church that we come to corporately gather, or you in your home, wherever you're watching this, that's the sanctuary or the auditorium, some people like to call it, because that's where we meet with other believers and we praise God and we worship him and we hear for him. But in a deeper sense, because of Jesus, God is with us wherever we go. We see his power and his glory in all of creation, in the daily things in our lives. That's why the fact that Jesus was given the title of Emmanuel first is so important. And why when he left, the, one of the last things he said in the book of Matthew is, I will be with you wherever you go. God is with us till the end of the age. So the sanctuary is where we meet God. And so where do you and I meet God? Wherever we go and we decide to stop, pray, worship, meditate on scripture, even for a moment, that is where we go and meet, and meet God. So how often do we not go to God when we need satisfaction? I know it sounds repetitive and simple, but this is the truth. God is all satisfying. So when our souls are thirsty and our body is weak and we need him, go to him because he is there. So it's no surprise and it's almost Sunday school like that you watch church online and you hear someone speak from the Bible and you ask a question and the answer is God. It almost seems like a cop out, but it's not because not only does David take two verses to tell us God is all satisfying, he then tells us why he goes to God and why he knows that God is all satisfying. And that's what makes up the rest of the Psalm. So David gives us three things. And if you can stick with me a little longer, we'll see what he has to say. So the first one comes from verses three to five. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live and in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Firstly, God is all satisfying because God's love is better than life. And because of that, we praise him. In other words, God is all satisfying because the commitment, the relationship, the blessing of who he is, is actually better than life itself to the fullest without him. God's love is better than life. So we praise him. So why is God's love better than life? What does that mean? Well, it's because God's love is actually what gives us life. The word in the original language here that's used for steadfast love is called chesed. It's one of the first words you learn. It's got that tickle in the back of your throat when you say it, chesed. And it is commonly translated as steadfast love, but it carries with it the meaning of goodness, kindness, relationship. God's chesed is better than life because of his steadfast commitment and his mercy and his relationship with his people. Now, how often do we value this love or God's lavishing of it upon us as better than not only the things we experience in life, but better than life itself? And why does it cause us to sing his praises? Well, it's because when we understand God's love, it has to cause us to thank you, to thank him, sorry. 
So what does we mean when we say it gave us life? Well, the Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were physically alive, but spiritually dead. On our own, we had no real life, no real purpose. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his love for, the, for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, Paul writes later in Ephesians 2, he says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in, in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, this is the message of Christianity. This is what the church is all supposed to be about. We were hopeless, lost, dead in our sins, without purpose, wandering. And God, because he loves us, made us alive with Christ. He gave us life. Now, how is that not better than the life we lived before when he gave us purpose and he gave us life and love? And then even if our circumstances change and everything falls down around us, how can we say that our eternal relationship and security with God is not better than the sweetest things that we can get without him? God's love is better than life, friends. So we praise him. So when we think about this, how are we praising God? When we learn more about his love, is it actually causing us to praise him? When you sit at home or you come to church and you sing songs with our worship team, are you singing and praising just because everyone else around is and because it's the thing to do? Or are we actually meditating on the love that God has had for us and saying, this is better. I want to praise you. And in our everyday life, as we go and we follow him and we obey him, are we doing it because we think it's the right thing to do or it's just the regular thing that Christian people do? Or are we acting out of an appreciation, a thankfulness for the love that God has shown us? It's something to think about. So the first thing David tells us is God's love is better than life. So we praise him. The second thing comes out of verses six to eight. God's care reaches our every moment so we cling to him. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you in the watches of the night because you are my help and I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you and your right hand upholds me. There is not a single second, especially when we are in danger, when we are outside of God's provision and care. It reaches every moment. So we cling to him. Remembering that God is his place of rest, not out of a sense of duty, but stemming from the love that he's been shown, David looks back at his relationship with God and remembers the Lord's work, specifically within what's called the watches of the night. This is when David was meant to guard the city. He meditates on God's protection. He's there to make sure no enemies are on the horizon and no one's coming to attack Jerusalem. It's not a particularly safe thing to do because he's the first line of defense. Now it's here he meditates on God's protection. Simply looking back and remembering the work of God in his life turns David towards praise. He says, in the wings of God, he finds rest and safety. When he says, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. It's got a twofold purpose and expectation. If you've had an eye in the spring, you might be able to see some mama birds with their babies just hatching from the eggs. And you'll be able to point out exactly what David is, is talking about here. That the eggs are hatching and new life enters the world. 
You can watch a glimpse of it. A mother bird outstretches her wings and her babies, her little chicklets, draw near to her and she holds them tight and they know she's got them and they're protected. We got a new dog and my dog does the same thing. If you ever see my dog at home and you ever start petting him just regularly on the couch as you're watching TV or doing anything in particular, reading a book, and at any moment you stop and put your hand back here, what he'll actually do is he'll nuzzle his head in between your arm and your body right here because he wants to be in there. He wants to be pet, mostly because he wants attention, but because that's where he feels safe. That's how we nestle up to God. And he always has his arm for us. This is what God does. He opens his arms and all we need to do is run to them and he takes care of us. He has promised to draw near to his people and an expectation, his people draw near to him. And finally, because David has found all of this protection and he realizes this is like when a mother bird protects her, her, her babies, he finds himself resting upon the care of God. He says, I cling to you and your right hand upholds me. Now, this is interesting that he uses the right hand. It's not because he thinks God is right-handed or because David is necessarily right-handed. Back in those days, your right hand was your strong hand. Whether you were right or left-handed, your right hand was the strong hand. And so what David is saying here is he is expecting the fullness of God's protection and his care. And when he says, my soul clings to you and your hand upholds me, we actually see now that David has received fulfillment from the things he asked for all the way back in verse one. He says, my soul thirsts for you and my flesh faints for you. When we talked about in verse five, being satisfied with rich foods, that's David's soul thirsting, being satisfied. And then now we see his soul clinging to God and being upheld. That's his body faint, but being satisfied. It's okay that we're weak because God always holds us. So, so far, David's told us two things. God's love is better than life and his care reaches our darkest nights. So we cling to him. So let me ask again, how are we clinging to him? When everything falls down is our first initial reaction, going into crisis management mode and fixing everything we can by ourselves, or is it to cling to God and ask for his provision, his help? It's an old adage, but if someone said to me, if you have the capacity to worry, you have the capacity to pray. Do we pray in those moments? Do we go to God and say, I need your care. I need your provision. How do we depend on him? Are we living by faith or are we just living, coming to church on Sundays and doing our own thing the rest of the week? How are we clinging to him? Something to question. So God's love is better than life and his care reaches our darkest nights. Finally, David's last lesson comes from the final three verses. Those who seek to destroy my life will go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the sword and they shall become a portion or food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of the liars will be silenced. Friends, the last thing we come to learn is that God is all satisfying because our king shall rejoice in God. And so we're gonna follow him. It's a little bit confusing, but in other words, 
God's enemies will be defeated. His justice will reign forever through his appointed king. And that is very, very good news for us. God is all satisfying because our king rejoices in him and we follow. David has a confidence from God, in God that I think we can learn from. Carefully and with context, it's clear that David is not simply talking about anyone he doesn't like. He's not talking about every single hardship he has. Remember, during this time, David had been appointed king by Samuel, God's chosen prophet. So David was the rightful king of Israel. And no one else had been appointed by God. And so David's point here is not that he will defeat his enemies every single time or overcome every hardship, or even that God will, will do those things for him. But he's saying that because David is the proper king of Israel, God's appointed king, no one's going to prevail in taking his life without God on their side. Not because he is so righteous, but because God has declared David to rule Israel at this time. This is further solidified when right in verse 11, he calls the, his, the people who seek his life liars. He's not pointing to his own victory, but he's pointing to God's plan being fulfilled and God's victory. The difference is that David seeks God. And the people who seek the disruption of God's plan, those are the people that seek David's life. And God will always frustrate the purpose of those who try to act according to his plan. David is satisfied in knowing that God is with him and that and God is for us, friends. If we are God's people, we can be sure that God is for us. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him and the mouths of the liars will be silenced. The king shall rejoice in God. What does that mean for us? Well, at this point, we don't have one supreme Christian that we follow as a king. We have a different king, a greater king. We have Jesus. When we say the king will rejoice in God, we're talking about Jesus. He is our king. And the amazing thing is, the ones that sought after our life are not our physical hardships that we face in this life. No, 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 it's something so much bigger. The ones that sought after our life were our spiritual enemies, sin, death, and Satan. And Jesus has already defeated him. The Bible tells us he will send them to the depths of the earth when, when Christ returns. God's enemies are defeated and they will be defeated finally. And when we have the choice to seek him and, and seek his satisfaction and say, your ways are better than mine. I've sought my own way for too long. I've sought something else and it didn't work. Help me seek your way. Not my own satisfaction, but the satisfaction that you bring. We place our faith in him and our sin is paid for us so that we can seek him all the days of our life. David had to look forward and say the king will rejoice in God. We get to look back at the work of Christ on the cross and say the king has rejoiced in God. The mouths of the liars have been silenced. Death is defeated. Sin is defeated. We look to Christ when we read this and we say the king, my king, rejoices in God. And we can say that all those who glory in God will be exalted, not because of our own merit, but because of God's grace. We say the mouths of the liars will be silenced, not because we can root out all the things wrong in our life, but because Christ is victorious. So let me ask you, who are you following? 
Are you following the things of this world or are you following Jesus because of his love and care for you and his victory over the things that sought your life? Are we seeking our own authority? Are we seeking control or are we seeking God? Friends, if you haven't made that decision, turn to God, seek him, make him your king. The one who came and lived a perfect life for us. He sought nothing but God his entire life. And he died and he rose again for us. He is exalted now and he is victorious. We're all seeking something. The question is, who are you going to follow? As Christians, we can say our king will rejoice in God, so we are going to follow him. There are people who want to disrupt God's plan. There are people who seek their own benefit. And there's going to be a measure of success in that. And they will tell you it's worth it. But it's a lie. There is a king who rejoices in God and he will be victorious. Seek him. Follow him. Seek Jesus because he satisfies. And we aren't perfect. Our path is going to stray. There's going to be times where we go back to seeking other things. But that's okay. Because even when we fall short, we can come back to him and say, I did it again, and he's still there. His love is still better than life. His care still reaches every moment. His wings are still open for us to run to. His love is better than life, so we praise him. His care reaches every moment, so we cling to him. And he will rejoice in God, so we're going to follow him. It's like the old hymn that we used to sing in church. Turn your eyes toward Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's not that the things of earth are just going to go away or that they'll even be less hard, but they'll grow strangely dim because Jesus is all satisfying. He is all you need. When everything is even going right and everything seems to be growing great, going great and everything's working out for you, we still need him. So look to him. And on the flip side, when everything is going wrong and we got nothing left, he is still there with his arms open and a love that is better than anything. Do you know what my favorite thing is about this psalm? It's not any one of the three points. My favorite thing is that this psalm is not a textbook on everything that makes God satisfying. It's not. This is not David writing out all of the points he has with an organized thesis statement and submitting an essay. This is David joyfully saying, God is all satisfying. Follow him. There are hundreds of other things in the Bible that tell us why God is all satisfying. His mercy, his grace, his wonderful works in our lives. But that's not what David is saying here. David is like a child who is coming home from school and they have about a million things to say. And he is just saying, come on, come on, I found it. This is it. This is all satisfying. This is what God is. You want to talk about it? We can talk about his love. We can talk about his care. We can talk about his victory. He's like that kid that comes home and it's just like, mom, mom, guess what happened at school? And he's got a million things to say. That's what this is. This isn't David's full list of things. This is just David overflowing with joy because of the satisfaction he finds in God. 
and he invites us. I invite you to join with him and say, God is all satisfying. So we're going to follow him and we're going to earnestly seek him. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you that in every moment, whether everything is going right or everything is going wrong, that you are there. You are satisfying because you love us and that is better than anything we can find. Because you care for us in every single moment. And because you will be victorious and we can follow you. God, thank you that you are there. You are loving and you are satisfying. God, help us as we go this week to carry this message with us. That in every circumstance, you are all satisfying. And we just need to turn to you in a split second and say earnestly, I am going to seek you. We thank you for this time that we have had together. And I pray that there is something here for us to learn or to be reminded and encouraged by. Thank you for this time in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.